Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And we have a fabulous show with James Hughes Jr. today. Uh, goes by Jay for everybody that's known him for years. So, Jay, welcome to the show. Michael, thank you. I am excited once again to be joining you in this uh, journey to help families flourish. Today, you know, so Jay's been on the show a number of times, but for those of you that don't know him, um, let me just say that, you know, I, I, you can hear one of the other episodes to get his background, but for, you know, was an attorney, still is an attorney, um, but stopped practicing and started really helping families because, you know, what he realized is he couldn't deal with the whole family um, from a legal perspective. And that was frustrating. So as he said in past episodes, the law left him. He didn't leave the law. Um, I love that. That was great. Jay, what I'd like to do is just to set more of a foundation about who you are and the, the, the how much experience you have from the time that you started leaving, you know, the law left you and you started, you know, working with families. How many families through the years, you know, have you worked with and, 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 and talk to and help them flourish? I mean, in roundabout numbers, I don't... Well, I'll answer the question in... Um, what a wonderful question. Let me see if I can answer it this way. In terms of a direct relationship with a family, uh, over the 55 years I've been practicing, and particularly the last 30 that have been this family work, I would say somewhere between 30 and 40 um, in all different capacities. However, I think it's also fair to say that with people like you and a number of other close associates who turned me with questions, I would say that I've influenced in the right sense of that word through people like you, Michael, hundreds of other families. And then Again, I hope this doesn't sound hubristic at all. It isn't. It's just the answer to your question. Um, it has been my practice in this last 30 years. Um, when invited to, and not the last few years when I'm more or less semi-retired, but it was my practice to accept invitations to uh, meetings of communities like the Purposeful Planning Institute. Um, where I felt that I could learn something and also, again, influence uh, a much, much larger number of people who would be reaching in turn, let's say, the uh, 20 to 30 families that uh, they were helping as their practices developed. So I had to give a long answer. I'm sorry, I'm, oh, I'm prone to long answers that they're, it's a sort of segmented. And then 
the last thing I would say um, is a is sort of an indirect in, uh, influence, but I have written as uh, the sites of my website show quite a number of books, um, helped other people write books, written forwards to books. And I'm pretty sure that that's probably reached hundreds of thousands of people in different, in very different ways. So I hope that doesn't sound hubristic, but I think there is that progression um, that is relevant to how I've tried to live my life and in the sense of trying to provide ways for people to think in the different mediums that might reach a family and cause them to think of something maybe a slightly different way yeah and it's the impact um that is you've had through the years that i just find so endearing because you do it in you're so gracious with your time and this passion of helping families flourish is real it's like your core purpose as, as you're doing things and we we thought, and I'll just share real quickly, we thought our core purpose was to inspire change. And and, and then over the last six months, we realized we, that wasn't our core purpose. Our core purpose was to strengthen families, strengthen businesses, and strengthen legacies. And and so when we, when, when we do those things, the inspiring change is important because oftentimes people do have to change whether, you know, if they were somebody that I'm not a lifelong learner, well, in order to do these things, we need to be a lifelong learner. If I'm, you know, an older, not an elder, I might need to make some switches on how I'm doing things. So I really, I got those two confused and it was really helpful when we do this. And I love, that's why I think you and I for can talk about these things for so long. Yes. That's at the core of the flourishing family and strengthening families. So. And Michael, I'd say one more thing, and then we'll get to our subject. Um, Without uh, making the audience uh, crazy, I've been working with some friends over the question of does anything change or does everything evolve? And I think maybe it's a little gentler to think of evolution. So I think it's actually what happens. I think we have stages of life. We move through them in a kind of natural way always hoping that we're accreting more spiritual and intellectual capital to become more human. So I, I love where you're changing. I think you're evolving. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> In a good way. That was that absolutely. Was, oh, no. Yeah, this is the most natural thing. I but so I just Throw that in for our audience's delectation. It's a wonderful word. Love it. All right. So today, what we're going to be talking about is the Hughes Family Bank. And yes. this was a concept that, you know, you thought of many, many years ago. This is, you know, it's been around. And like I'm looking at the copyright. Um, I'm on your website right now. The James E. Hughes Jr. Foundation website. Yes. yes. Uh, and for, for anybody that wants to go find it, it's jhjf.org. Um, and so it's the, the James E. Hughes Jr. Foundation. This was copyright 1999. So the yeah. idea probably was formed prior to that. You know, you, you probably were using it. So let's talk about, you know, you have a, 
what is what is it the idea behind the family bank? Well, Michael, I have to tell the story uh, because it's a very important story to who I am. Um, my father, whose name I have and who practiced law in New York City uh, for 50 years, also was deeply interested in the question of flourishing families, more, a little bit more perhaps from their enterprises um, than I have been interested more in the family, but very, very similar. He had a funny way of being because he was very cerebral man, good, good father, good emotion, but really cerebral, very, very smart. And so he would have a funny way. I was the oldest of four children. I should say I am the oldest. And so he would communicate to me in a Victorian way in which I was then to communicate to my brother and sisters. It was, obviously, we don't do that much anymore, but that was the way he operated. So one day, about three weeks after my younger sister graduated from college, let's see, she was born in 1950. So let's say the early 1980s, 80, probably 1982. He called me one day, literally in a kind of Victorian way and said, I'd, I'd like to talk to you, which meant going into his study. And he had a, a little study, something like this office, I guess, or yours. Um, and when he would make that invitation, I knew that I was going to leave with duties, but usually also with something useful to learn. So I went into his study and sat down and he said, now, Jay, he said, I want you to understand your mother and I are now a bank. You're a bank? You're, you're a lawyer. What do you mean you're a bank? So it's very simple. Now, Michael, when my father said it's very simple, that was at least an hour of great complexity. <laughs> but I got used to it and I was practicing law with him. I had a pretty good idea of how to think when he talked. So I said, Dad, what are you really trying to impart to me? He said, well, he said, look, your mother and I had a plan when we got married in 1940, end of the Depression both depression and our kids. I mean, that's a long family story too. Your mother and I made a plan. We've been planners and we made a plan. And that is that we would try to uh, earn sufficient funds. She worked as a mom at home, the typical family at that time. He went to New York every day on the train, including Saturdays in those days. And he said, well, the plan was that we would try to reflate our families, but both that had very difficult times in the depression. And we would try to send all of you through private schooling. He believed profoundly in progressive education, as did my mother, who was an early childhood educator. My dad was actually uh, the chairman of three or four different schools, two colleges. I mean, he was very committed to pro progressive liberal education. I said, well, yes, that's true. And he said, well, do you understand that the plan's completed? Again, I, Michael, what is he talking about? He said, well, your sister graduated from college. I said, now I'm beginning to hear, hear him a little more clearly. I said, oh, I see. So Barbie graduated from college. He said, yes, yeah, so it's simple. You know, he said, so we're now a bank. I said, Dad, what do you mean a bank? He said, well, what I mean is that your mother and I have completed our plan. We have some resources, and again, we were a professional family, not a business family, but my father and mother were credible savers. They bought a savings bond, Michael, every week uh, for 50 years, every week. 
Um, so he said, essentially, we have more resources than your mother and I think we will probably need for being old people because we don't want to be dependent on you. And he said, I don't really believe much in inheritances. Uh, I don't think they're much use. I prefer to use the money in my lifetime. So he said, here's what I'd like you to do. He said, I'd like you and your younger brother and your two younger sisters to form the board of a bank. Not We're not creating a company. We're not going to create an LLC. No, just of the bank. And from time to time, we would like you to ask each other's thoughts about a grant or a loan from the bank. And he said, if you find there's something that one of the four branches would benefit from, uh, then you would you bring that to your mother and I? And he said, frankly, you're all pretty sound people. Uh, I can't imagine we would veto it, but we would like to know what you're doing. He said almost always, and he, and by the way, it was absolutely true. He never, they never said no to anything in the right sense. So we commenced this family bank. And Michael, it's the most powerful idea I've ever encountered in our field because my father was and mother were saying the funds, not the money, but the spirit of the family now was inclusive of the six of us and our spouses, by the way was no never any distinction in our family between those that were of a certain DNA and those who chose to join us. My mother and father always treated everybody who, who was foolish enough, as they used to say, to want to sit at our table. Well, maybe 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 they'll make us better was their attitude, which was a, a frankly also a very advanced, I think, an appropriate attitude. So here we found ourselves, my brother and sisters and I, and the understanding was that if there was a need for a loan or a grant, uh, we would prepare a business proposal and bring it to uh, a meeting of the siblings. The purpose of the meeting of the siblings was not so much to say no, it was to benefit from what we might know about a similar issue so we could have conversation and grow the social capital of our family, essentially, that internal capital that was uh, that is us. So my father and mother were really saying, we are making a spiritual gift of our resources for the next rising generation, which is an amazing spiritual act. It's really not a, a, a physical act, it's a spiritual act. That has stood our family in great stead and many, many other families that I have suggested that idea to. It's natural. And there's something for my father and mother in it that my mother, who wasn't, I think, entirely certain <laughs> about this idea. But if my father thought it was a good idea, she thought, well, all right, Jim probably knows it's probably okay. I'll go along with it. I'm not sure she was ever quite as keen. But for him, the release, so to speak, of a responsibility that he didn't feel, he was a patriarch in many ways, but he didn't feel responsible for those funds other than they're being invested properly and properly managed, and that there were enough for he and mom if they got to be old. So we, they were not a, see themselves as a burden on us. But what he was really saying is, look, you take over. It's appropriate now. I've done my, I've met, I've completed my plan. How profound. What a, what a great, great yeah. idea. Through, when you were doing 
you know, is there any stories of things that, you know, you can share about what were some of the, what were some of the loans or you know, bequests for? Well, because we were deeply involved at ourselves, the four of us in education, and um, committed to service. And I don't want to sound like we're hoity. We are just very simple people. I'm sorry sake, very simple people. But my parents' interest in education and the gift they gave us of a private education, which is an incredible gift, no disrespect to public education at all, just, but an incredible gift. So the question of service on boards of uh, schools and things that our children might attend, many of whom our kids did go to public school and had a very good experience. Or We were very interested in supporting one of us who would go on a board in looking at projects at that school that that particular person felt the school could benefit from. Now, we, did, we couldn't endow these things, right? but we, we could follow service with action. Um, I guess if I could put it in philosophical terms for a moment, if someone was willing to give his or her human and intellectual self in service, and they came and said, look, would you help with this particular action at the school, not its annual fund, that's your responsibility, but something special, then we would very often say, that's a great idea, because you've invested yourself in that project. We're now coming along with you with some financial capital. And I think that's a, that is often, it wasn't just education or things like this, but what we were almost always do, Michael, is say, well, are you invested? Yeah, this is a nice idea. But are you invested in what way are you invested? So we were using the principle of matching, but we were doing it, I think, in a much more substantive way. Matching dollar for dollar, that's good. But matching human and intellectual investment in a cause with some financial capital is a very interesting and I think intriguing way of matching. Time, treasure, and talent. Yeah, and, and we get to know what each other's doing. Yeah, that's really, that's pretty awesome. So from that seed... What germinated for you? What you know? So when you look, when we talk about the Hughes Family Bank today, and you're introducing this to you know one of the families that has adopted it, what are some of the things that you know have grown from this idea for you and for the families you serve? Well, let's look at it culturally and structurally. And as we all know, the great paper written by our colleague Matt Wesley, "Culture Eats Structure for Breakfast." So a lot of work in this field about family banks, unfortunately, Michael, as it's filtered into the world, has been picked up by structuralists. And they'll talk to the family, well, you need this structure, that structure. No, you don't. You need a culture of giving and then find a structure that supports that culture. That's fundamental. Okay. So what is the culture we're talking about here? Um, an ancient philosopher named Aristotle, that is the founding ideas of a Western world. By the way, uh, the Eastern world, the Buddha and the Hindus have the same uh, principle. What's the difference between a gift and a transfer? Doesn't it, isn't it the same thing? No. 
Aristotle said, for something to be a gift, this is culture, it must be magnificent. He said that was a virtue, like courage and justice, or in the East, equanimity and empathy. What did he mean? He meant magnanimity, hard to say, hard to do, big-heartedness. So he said, first of all, if you're going to make something for another person, ask yourself, are you making a gift or a transfer? Now, transfers are okay, but almost always they carry with them some kinds of obligations. They're not big-heartedness. They're not, I love you, I act. Yes, I don't want to harm you, or but I act. So I would say one of the things from our family, again, this is not the Hughes's. We have all the same problems everybody else has, for heaven's sakes. But when we act in the family bank toward the world, are we making a gift? Now, from a structural standpoint, we did, my dad and I did decide to create a very small foundation. So we have a, the James E. Hughes, James E. and Elizabeth B. Hughes Foundation. It's very small, but it enables the rising generations to get together and decide to give away, I don't know, $5,000. It's not, but the important is they're getting together as social and then acting toward another. And the one thing we ask them to do is not make transfers. We ask them to make gifts. This isn't subtle. This is culture. Now, people are saying, well, what does he mean? Well, I'll say this. Grants, write a check to somebody. It's, it's not a bad thing. Something happens. But are you involved? Is your heart involved? Huh. Is there magnanimity? What are you transferring? Oh, transferring? No. Are you making a gift? You see, it, they're, they're, they're very different. So. A family bank affords a family, that's a lovely word, an opportunity together to do something without a lot of structure, no structure at all, frankly, unless you really need it, to assure that you're learning about each other as you're acting with big hearts to another. Now, that doesn't mean that a donor-advised fund isn't a good idea. It's a great idea. I, I have one myself. They're a great idea. Well, my wife does, and I work with her. But the key is, what is the culture of your intention? It's, and is, go ahead. I was just, it's just interesting that your family bank was more charitably inclined. And most people would think of that as the donor advised fund. Or, you know, we've done, we did another podcast where we talked about the grandparent, grandchild philanthropy project, you know. Right. Right, exactly. And so that it seems like it would go to that. Whenever, and I'm, I've known you for years, when I thought of the family bank, I had not heard this story. And this story makes it so much more meaningful and different because immediately I'm thinking about entrepreneurial things. I'm thinking, uh -huh. about, I'm thinking about education or what are we doing to help the individuals flourish? Right, and, right. And you surprised me in a great way. Um, and it's about that, the, the culture of that gift of being able to say, take your time and your talent and we'll match the treasure to go with it. That's the key. And that makes it a magnanimous gift. That makes that, it meaningful. That is, that's right. And you're doing it together. Yeah. And right. And then, you know, so go back to, 
in other podcasts that we've talked about that togetherness and how do we have that time to share with one another and get this family to flourish so that we don't have the third generation, the cousin generation start to drift and we can bring them in together and find ways to, to keep them together. And it's so important for families. It doesn't matter about wealth. No, no matter about wealth, though, though it's, if you, if you don't do it there, the, any issues or cracks will start to appear because they're not together. They don't have those things. So that, you know, for a family of wealth of means, it's really 10 times as important. It's not no more, it's not more or less important. I shouldn't say that, but it's just, it goes back to be intentional. Michael, it does. And the wealth word, as you and I have discussed in other forums, actually, wealth actually means well-being. Financial capital means financial capital. Now, the word wealth has taken on a connotation of money, but it's not actually its derivation. The word wealth comes from two old Anglo-Saxon words, we all, we still have commonwealth and common, using the word, but the word actually means well-being. So if a family wants to grow its wealth, it needs to grow its qualitative self, its spiritual, social, intellectual, and human self, and then grow its financial capital to support growing those, like this. So the family bank's wealth is actually the spiritual and social action that it enables using financial cap. This is my father's brilliance. Yeah. He said, look, we have, your mother and I have a little more financial capital than we think we need, but we like it employed in a qualitative way, first in the house and then outside to everybody else. There's a, when the Pope, it's a story I love, when the Pope in Easter stands on the balcony, there in St. Peter's Square, and there are 100,000 people standing there waiting to hear what he has to say. And he always gives the speech with the same title. He just says different things. He says, ex urbi to the city, ex orbi to the world. He speaks the Latin. He doesn't speak in Latin, but he speaks the ancient church, ex urbi to the city, ex orbi to the world. So he speaks first to his congregation, a family bank, and then he speaks to the world how do we act to the world? Isn't it? It's a. It's so beautiful. It's so human. Right. And I think today in this world where we're constantly doing, we're constantly running, we're not taking the time to be thought-filled or purposeful and intention-filled with what we're doing and what this is a mechanism to say, let's slow down a moment. Let's get people. Let's get people to communicate and share and be together, and let's go do something good together. And my father would say, as you just beautifully did, hasten slowly. <laughs> you need to get somewhere, but maybe at a pace that is more human. Yeah, and that gives you time for contemplation and conversation. The, spirit, the, the family bank is basically a spiritual operation. It's to, it's to aspire, to inspire, to perspire, as we've talked about at other times. 
it's an aspiration. He had an aspiration. We were inspired by it. And then we had to perspire, find out what to do, how to help each other, how to help the world. What? And again, I want to say it a second time, just so when we're hearing it, what makes a great gift is something to which one of your family members aspires to help and is inspired. And you come along and help a little bit with the financial capital to support that aspiration of that human being. Oh, is that fun? And I think Aristotle would be clapping. <laughs> when so when I go to the website and I'm looking at it being and, and I always struggle with this, I am a technician. And I and I always have to put my other hat on and it's it's sometimes a challenge. So for the years that I have read this, I look at it from the the technical standpoint of things like, you know, only family members and over 21 advisory voting and, you know, um, you know, a chairman and a secretary. And I just, I get so in my head around that piece. Mm -hmm. So for those who might go to your website, go to the, the James E. Hughes Jr. Foundation website, and they're looking at this outline of the family bank. Mm -hmm. How do you pull those two pieces together? I mean, I hear what you're saying, but now, so how does, you know, adopting the Rothschild model yeah. fit in these things, you know, and, and put it all together? How, can, how do we pull this together? Well, let me say, first of all, that humane organisms need to evolve to a structure to support their humanity, not the other way around. So, I've always often said to clients and friends and people like you and our audience today, think first about the culture, try it out for a while, and then see what rules you need. See what structure you need. Start it out. Try it out. See how it feels. See how you do it. Not so well. Somebody else does it. Now, I'm going to say something now that's a little bit the elephant in the room for some of our technicians. They'll notice that not one thing my father said had anything to do about structure or taxes. Nothing. Nor have I said one thing in nearly 40 minutes about those things. I'm not ignoring them. I've been a lawyer for 55 years. <laughs> I have my license. Yes, for the last 30 years, I haven't practiced, but I understand motivation. But Michael, my entire life, and my dad's before me, and this was part of his wisdom, is figure out something that makes sense. Try it. Play with it. There's a, a wonderful philosopher named Heisinger who said that the way to define Homo sapiens, our species, is that we play. We're not tool makers. That was earlier species. We play. We are creative, curious species, aren't we? And gregarious. We have to do stuff together. So we can't survive alone like a, uh, many animals can from the day they're born, but we can't. So play. And dad would say, and Jay would say, and I think Michael would say to a family, if this is a good idea, play with it. Highest kind of play. 
then decide what rules you actually need. And by the way, purposefully, now I will show that I was a little bit, uh, um, well, I was playing mischievous in that paper I wrote. I very carefully did everything I can not to have structure in that paper, not because it isn't necessary. So I minimized it on purpose, not minimized. That's not fair. I, I did as little as I could hoping that's that a family who, that was interested in this would try it out and then see what rules they liked to have what structure helped them do the culture every family's different right and so yes yeah and so it, it was really interesting now that you when i gave the, you know, in, in a previous podcast we talked about the grandparent grandchild right. project that i call it right. um and I gave the paper to a client and I asked if she would like any help. She, no, I'm, I'm running with it. <laughs> yes. She wanted right. to play. Right. She yeah, wanted she to play. Grandma and, wants to play. Come on. Yeah. So, so this, you know, we can give to people and just, I think it needs to be paired from my perspective for someone like me, at least it needs to be paired with this podcast so we can listen to the initial intent so that we don't get lost in the outline that is exactly what i was hoping i achieved so if i've achieved it with you i'm hoping i can achieve it with one more person who's listening to us because it is easy to start making rules and writing stuff down and giving people titles here's the problem with that it's subtle Someone first has to write the play. There has to be a plot. The plot's the culture. What is, what is the play about? And when the, when the artist who's leading the play, the, the head of the mummers or Peter Quince and, and uh, leading the funny players in, in Midsummer Night's Dream, you have to, the play has to emerge. Then you have to figure out who can play what role. Not everybody can play every role. No. And then then you have a play that has substance. And by the way, you end up with a comedy, which, as the Greeks said, is everyone standing at the end of the play rather than bodies lying on the stage. <laughs> we want to write comedies, not comedies, but play plays. If I can make a bad pun, plays that play. OK, this is how this is very, very, very helpful. And. I think it's important that I heard this so that I can impact families in a much more meaningful way. Some families, entrepreneurship is their core value. And right. so they'll utilize right. this to, to play in that yes. sandbox. Yes. While others, education, it may be. It might be healthcare. For another family. Of course. So this is the magic. Yes. Is you're just planting a seed and just letting it germinate. And we don't even know what that seed, what it's going to grow into. And that's the wonder. This is wonder. This is a place to, my father was so clear. Wonder. Isn't it wonderful? Wonder. Yes. Um, let me just touch for a moment. So we sort of have a comprehensive conversation of all the different elements. There are a number of people in our field, Michael, who come from a, the technical, as you were saying, side, who have 
taken this idea and turned it into what I call a venture capital fund idea. Now, you were just talking about entrepreneurs. Um, I think this is fine. It just isn't what my father had in mind. Right. Uh, it's perfectly fine. And it has appeal. And I can certainly understand the utility in a family making a long multi-generation journey of developing a fund for the venturing ideas of family members. I think that's a very worthy idea. It's not, in my opinion, a family bank. So I'm not putting my parents in like that. No, I don't mean it that way. I just think it isn't in the spirit of what he had in mind. I think both are useful is really what I'm saying. What I'm also saying is, though, I'm much, I strongly urge, let me put it that way, a family to begin with the family bank from the spiritual component of growing the spirit of that family. Then, if there is an investment question, add it. Why? Because every family is composed of artists as well as scientists. The problem that I have for a family that begins with the venture capital fund is it doesn't give the artists any chance to grow and glow. It doesn't, it isn't inclusive. And a world of all science would be boring. I, I, in fact, it's, I think it's inhumane <laughs> in the high sense of the humanities, the nature of a human journey. So I, again, I want to be very clear to our audience. I am not in any way suggesting a venture capital fund isn't useful. What I'm trying to do is to bring my father's remarkable gift into the world of saying, grow the spiritual capital of your family through a common enterprise of grants and loans that enable things. I think that is a discrimination that is a difference. So inside of the, there are a couple of things that I think are worth talking about inside of there, like, you know, adopt the Rothschild model. What does that yes. mean? What does that mean to you? Well, old Meyer Armstrong Rothschild in the middle of the 18th century in a ghetto in Frankfurt uh, was lucky enough with his wife to have nine children. And most of them lived, which is even more among them, five men and four women. I think that's right. There may have been more women, but let's, I think that's right. He was a banker, very uh, capable banker who helped the local aristocrats when war came, protect their jewels and things or lend them money to have soldiers. He was a very, very astute banker. And he was so astute that during his lifetime, his, his sons didn't have to live in the ghetto. They were honored to go. They could live where they wanted. I have financial capital that I'm earning as a banker. I want to intermediate into the world. That's how bankers make money, right? But he was much smarter than that. He said, no, what I have is human capital in abundance. Nine children, five men. And he said, what we need is intellectual capital. I can educate my sons and my daughters, but... No, we need to understand the world. We're, we're going to be bigger than Frankfurt and bigger than the ghetto. That's an enormous aspiration, isn't it? So what did he do? He sent four of the sons, one to London, one to Paris, one to uh, Naples, and one 
um, to Austria. He stayed in Frankfurt with the oldest son. And he said, each of you is to set up a bank. I will lend you the capital. By the way, you have to pay interest, just less than a stranger would pay. He's got to pay interest. But he said, that's not important to me. What is important to me is that every week you send me a letter and you let me know what's going on in your financial center, your politics, your social, your economic. I want to know. And I, in turn, will circulate that. He created the first knowledge-based bank, National Bank. It could say, I mean, International Bank. Is it good to be a Rothschild? Yeah, huh? Still today, it's good to be a Rothschild. But what else did he do? He not only encouraged them to be a social system, growing social capital inside the family, but they were highly gift, uh, philanthropic from the beginning. Now, that is in part because if you are a practicing Jew, there's a covenant with God. If you remember the rainbow after Noah, so if, that's a beautiful idea from Judaism. You have to be philanthropic, otherwise God might send another flood. You have a responsibility. So the Rothschilds not only are known for being very good bankers today, they still have their two pieces left of those five, um, but they're also involved in all kinds of wonderful causes and institutions that are hundreds of years old. So what was he doing? He was employing his human capital to create intellectual capital, to create social capital with spiritual capital, with the money, essentially the grease to enable those to grow. And that's why it's not bad to be a Rothschild. <laughs> he invested, it's very much like your father, their time, their talent, his treasure, and he made, you know, he did it as loans because so there was some a sense of responsibility to what you were doing. And there was, right. but very, very similar thought yes. process. Yes. Yes. And I would say a little more economic than my father's, but not, but so what? Right. You know, we're a capitalist. <laughs> I am in favor of capitalism. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right, Michael. This was in the old man's consciousness. And I think his wife's as well, why we know less from what her, she was uh, offering. These, these things are so important. The, I will add for a moment also the Rockefeller story, which I think is also interesting here, because Rockefeller story, which is an American family, when the old man Rockefeller had uh, retired at 50 from the oil and gas business, doing philanthropy and things, they had five children also, not nine, but five, four daughters and a son. Of course, at that time in the late uh, 19th century, um, the, the boys had to go to business. The girls got capital and real estate. The boys had to go. So John D. Rockefeller Jr. essentially, when his father retired, and even before that, had to go on boards and things and be a capitalist. Well, a series of conversations that they had, I made it one in my first book, but it's a series of conversations at Kaikit, which is the house that the son built for the father, which you can visit on the Hudson River. It's a, it's a very simple house. Could have been 
entirely different. It isn't. It's a home. It's not a house. But the father and the son engaged in conversation. And I'll shorten it this way. Junior, as he was called, which was a hard thing to do, but he had his father's name. It's a tough thing to be junior. I'm a junior. I know something about that. Finally went to his father and he said, Father, I would like to leave the family business. Father said, really, son, what do you do? What, what do you want to do? And Junior said, Father, I want to spend my life growing a great family and doing philanthropy. By growing a great family, you can read at Rockefeller Center today, there's a plaque as you approach the skating rink where you can read his philosophy. Now, what's so fascinating about that story, Michael, is the father said, then you must do that. He didn't say you can't do it. And then he said, and by the way, I'm not doing so well with my philanthropy. Will you help me? You feel the spiritual capital of that family? Yeah. Lies in that son and father's conversation. And what did Rockefeller Jr. go on to do? He had five sons and a daughter. They all turned out pretty well. Were there issues? Yes. There's but issues they all turned out pretty well. And the philanthropies still support all kinds of important things in America today, most of which people have no idea was Rockefeller money. Now, I'm not praising people, but they were also a family bank. They were responsible to the world as well as to each other for exchanges, for learning. These are, you know, these people knew what they were doing. Different times. And yes, but we can still, I, I think there's a lot to be said. And I, when I said it, it really resonated for me. There's a lot to be said in taking time to slow. As my dad said, hasten slowly. Hasten. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a book recently written a few years ago by a couple of Navy SEALs about mm. about running their business called extreme ownership and they said smooth slow is smooth smooth is fast just hasten. as wise hasten, hasten slowly <laughs> and i think you know is there any other notes about you know any other comments or notes that you would like to talk about the family bank i think michael i feel very complete thanks to your wonderful questions yeah thank I, you you're welcome and thank you for joining us because now when we talk about this with families i think i need to do more stepping aside unless mm. and let and, and, and just offer the paper and the podcast and say go play with this if this is that something excites you then play with it and my dad would be blessing yours and my conversation today um a very humble man but he would say if we can continue the lineage of that spiritual magnanimity it's a good thing to do wonderful jay hughes thank you so much for joining us today on the family biz show um, it's been great to have you. I want to remind people um, the James E. Hughes Jr. Foundation website has a library. There's lots of Jay, of your of Jay's writings and reflections available there. Um, well worth if you're looking to 
ensure that your family has a chance at flourishing, a lot of those writings will really help you to think about how to do that in a thought-filled and purposeful manner. So again, um, thank you, Jay. My name is Michael Columbus um, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. This has been the Family Biz Show, and we look forward to having you on future episodes and sharing more information with, uh, with us. And thank you. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.